Thank you. And now we'd like to uh, bring Willie Cook, trumpeter, down into the foreground in uh, his solo rendition of Tipa Two. <laughs> It was a little bit of utopia there for a little bit. It was one of the great music events in history. That was Duke Ellington at the 1956 Newport Jazz Festival and the voice of 90-year-old music festival pioneer and founder of the Newport Jazz Festival, George Ween, recorded in an interview with Musonomics last week in New York. I'm Larry Miller, and this week's Musonomics is the first of a two-part series on the development of the Summer Music Festival. And where better to start than with George Ween, who, in addition to Newport's Jazz Festival, also founded the Newport Folk Festival and helped establish dozens of other successful music festivals across the world, including Jazz Fest, the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. We sat down with George to talk about his remarkable career the brilliant musicians he's rubbed elbows with, what it was like when Dylan went electric 50 years ago in 1965, and how George came to build the blueprint on which festivals like Coachella and Bonnaroo have constructed their success. This year marks 60 years since Miles Davis's debut at the second Newport Jazz Festival, and 50 years since Dylan went electric at the Folk Festival. And it's hard to imagine a time before you, George Wayne, produced the first Newport Jazz Festival and really wrote the playbook for summer, outdoor, non-classical music festivals. So going way back to that time or even the time before the first jazz festival, you were and still are a pretty good piano player. You grew up in the Boston area. You opened a jazz club in Boston, Storyville. And then at some point, Shortly after that, in the first couple of years of Storyville's operation, there was the idea of a jazz something in Newport. Can you talk at all about the beginning of the Newport Jazz Festival and how the idea even came to be? The story of life is funny because I never had any motivation. I never said, oh boy, I want to do a jazz festival. But when the people from Newport, the Laurel Lads, came into my club one night and they said, we want to liven up the summer in Newport. And uh, they had tried the uh, New York Philharmonic. They'd been involved with some people. So I went home to think about it and I realized there was a Tanglewood classical music festival. Why couldn't we have a jazz festival? Now, I'd seen them term jazz festival because they'd done a one night event in France that they called a jazz fest, but it wasn't an ongoing thing. It was just one festival de Paris, uh, the jazz, you know, one of those things. I said, so I think we could do a festival. After all, I knew all the musicians. They all worked my club. I knew who was popular. I knew another thing, that I always wanted to go to Newport. I'd never been there. Newport is known for the great mansions, the Vanderbilt Mansion, the Breakers, where we're having our gala this year. And uh, I went there. And I said, wait a minute, you have to take a ferry to get here, or a bridge, or pay a toll. There are no trains here. You can't get here. I said, this is great. People will come. <laughs> it was perfect. And that's exactly what happened. And uh, the hallowed grounds of the casino were the scene of the first festival. 
And nobody could believe it, but we drew 5,000 people a night. And the next day, there were photos all over the world of the International News Service. Nobody ever done anything like that in Newport. It rained, and people sitting with umbrellas for four or five hours listening to jazz. That helped make the international news. So the next thing we knew, we were a major element and a major event. And so other than the, uh, the rain, what were some of the early struggles that you had with the jazz festival in the early years, the first couple of years in particular? Oh, there were a lot of, lot of struggles. When, we, when you start bringing an event like that to a town that is so insular as Newport, you had two things. You had the Navy there with a whole bunch of Southern kids that were officers that resented having blacks come, African-Americans come, and be in the hotels and in the restaurants. And, and so we had to beat that down, which we did. And, uh, for instance, one of the sponsors of the casino had a party for it after the festival. He said, he said to me, uh, George, uh, please invite some of the musicians, but don't invite too many of the Africans. Oh. So I obliged. I didn't invite anybody, and I went. And it was a very empty party. But uh, <laughs> A lot I mean, of extra food. Little, little things like that, that uh, you don't fight. You just flow with them, and because what you're doing is going to win the fight in the first place. If, while if you start criticizing people, they turn against you this way. They wanted the festival and they thought they were being very liberal and thought they were being... Finally, they understood what it was to accept it. Now we have a wonderful time in Newport now. We're like, uh, we're like the Golden Fleece now. And, and what about early successes? What were some of the first wins that you had in Newport that really made you think that you were onto something? I guess Miles Davis, uh, Miles... Uh, Miles was pretty sick at that time, and uh, we didn't use him on the festival. I didn't hire him. But this was the second night and the second festival. Uh, Miles saw me in a nightclub, and he says, George, I understand you're having a festival at Newport. That's the way he talked. I said, "Uh, yeah, so you can't have a festival without me. He repeated that two or three times, so I said, okay. He didn't have a band. I brought him up there by himself. It wasn't, you won't find his name in the program book of the second festival. But I put together a band with Thelonious Monk on piano and Jerry Mulligan on saxophone, Connie Kay and Percy Heath in the rhythm section, and I guess Zoo Sims was there. None of them had bands. And Miles put the bell of his horn into the microphone and played round midnight. Everybody was talking about Miles. And to this day, that's the memorable thing of 1955. 54 was the first year, and I always remember the set with Billy Holiday and Lester Young. I worked so hard to put this set together because Billy and Lester hadn't talked for years. And I had Teddy Wilson on the piano and Buck Clayton on the trumpet and, you know, the guys that recorded those those uh, uh, wonderful records in the 1930s that John Hammond recorded in the 30s. Willow, and they went up and, and Prez didn't go on the stage. Prez was Lester Young. Bend your branches down. And I finally said to him, Prez, are you going up? And he looked at me and says, I guess I'll have to go and help the lady out. Listen to my plea. 
These were memorable, classic moments in the history of jazz in the 20th century. And where John, uh, where Paul Gonzalez did 27 choruses on diminuendo and crescendo and Joe Blue. And I'm standing off stage there and I'm looking at the crowd, they're going crazy. This woman's dancing and for the first time it's a happening because Newport was a very staid event in those days. Everybody bought a reserved seat. They might have stood up and cheered, but they stayed in their seats. They didn't want to lose their seat. All of a sudden, people were coming to the stage because Ellington was breaking it up. And it was one of the first happenings that you'd ever see, which now occur all the time at pop festivals, because nobody even has seats now. They don't worry about that. They just come and sit in the grass or they stand up all night long. Ellington always said after that, I was born in Newport in 1956. I remember that night when it finished, I, I, I was scared. I mean, I never had a crowd problem. Remember, I was young, I, I was writing the book, as you said. None of these things had ever happened before. And I was worried about the crowd. But what Ellington did is he had Johnny Hodges come up and play a ballad. And now, all I, I simply want to say, I'm, I'm sure if you've heard of the saxophone, you've heard of Johnny Hodges. Johnny. And the crowd just settled down while that beautiful sound of Hodges' saxophone melted the crowd right down into the seats again. Beautiful memories. The recording of that performance was issued by Columbia, I think. I think it was uh, the largest selling recording of Duke's career, was it not? Another mistake I made, like we didn't have a piece of that. We made deals in those days that uh, uh, I thought were great deals. If the Columbia wanted to record, record the artist, they paid us what the artist was getting paid for the night. So we had the artist for nothing. I thought that was a tremendous deal. It still is a good deal, but at the same time, we could have had one or two points on the album because that album's still selling, and uh, we'd have had a little money coming in. But I'm not worried about that because getting, getting those artists paid for, Norman Grant's one, yeah, practically paid for the whole festival, and that was very important to us. In those first few years in particular, Newport was organized as a not-for-profit, how was the financial performance in those first few years? Oh, we made money because it was new. I mean, look, in the first year, well, let's see. I think we grossed $50,000 and paid for everything. And I didn't take my salary because if I took my salary, we would have lost about $3,000. And this way, Louis could go to his club and say, look, I did this whole thing. It didn't cost me a dime. It isn't that I didn't need the $3,000 because I was just living week to week. But I was having fun. I was building my reputation. But uh, the festival made money right up until uh, uh, the riot of 1960, and then everybody walked away from it. Can you talk a little bit more about what happened in 1960 
and what sort of caused the tide to turn and then have you really restructure the Newport business and come back in 62? If you go into a town or go into an area, you're not something by yourself. You have to relate to the area, and the area has to relate to you. And so here we were doing this festival. The city didn't work with us. We didn't work with the city. So the city decided, hey, they're bringing all these people to town. The bars close at 1 o'clock. Why don't we let them stay open till 4 o'clock in the morning? And the next thing you know, thousands of people were coming to Newport. After three or four years, the word got out around to all of New England that you could, hey, Newport's the place to go. You can have a ball all night long. Now, we had the festival sold out. Some people couldn't get in. And, but the town itself was full. The police asked me to keep the concert going till 2 o'clock in the morning while they cleaned up what was happening in the streets outside. I wasn't outside, but I read about it the next day, and this is riot at Newport Jazz Festival. There was no riot at the festival. Festival might have been the, been the root cause of people coming to town, but there was no riot at the festival. But then we learned after that, hey, you have a responsibility to work with us, and we have a responsibility to work with you. Well, you saw what happened at Woodstock. They didn't know what they were doing any more than we knew except we did succeed in what we were doing. They, they had one year, they had two, three hundred thousand, four hundred, five, I don't know, I got the figures, I don't know. And, but it never happened again. Mm. And, but now, there are a lot of great music festivals because they know how to run them. They benefited from the experience of what we did and Woodstock and what we do in New Orleans and, and all these great festivals happen I guess we did have an influence on them. And so around the time that we were just speaking about, the very early 60s, the folk festival had already gotten underway as well. But you're really a jazz guy, George. How did the folk festival start at that location? Well, people say I'm really a jazz guy. But I was influenced by uh, Cafe Society, you know, the clubs in New York. I found that, uh, hey, I couldn't get a jazz attraction this week. Why don't I get a folk attraction? And I would play Josh. I played Richard Dyer Bennett. I played Pete up there, and I played groups like the Tarriers. But one time I played Odetta. Got my reason to stay. Take this road she was brand new. And the kids came in like I couldn't believe. Sunday afternoon, drinking ginger ales. It was packed. And I said, I better pay attention to this. So I decided to do a folk afternoon at Newport like I'd done a tap dance afternoon, like I'd done a gospel afternoon. I put together Pete Seeger and the Weavers and the Kingston Trio and, and Odetta and I forget what else. And, and man, it exploded. I said, we have a festival here. So I went up to Pete's place with his wife and my wife, Toshi and Joyce, and we sat up in the log cabin there at night. I stayed overnight, and we said to keeping the festival back. And we decided to do the festival again, but every artist would have to work for $50 a night and expenses. Only Pete Seeger could come up with an idea like that and that people would follow him. Every major artist, no matter who they were, came for $50 a night 
And we'd bring people like Spokesman Shiani from South Africa, who never didn't even know how to get there, but he got there. Bring blues singers from the South and, and uh, the Sea Island singers from Georgia and Canadian folk singers. And it was just marvelous, just a, sort of a, it was a little bit of utopia there for a little bit. It was one of the great music events in history. All of these things were important in the development of festivals. And so for someone who is starting a festival today, and there are lots of summer music festivals in particular around the world, some of them are very successful and some less so, what do you think is a reasonable time frame to think about in order to get a festival profitable? Is it sensible to think that you can do a festival in the first year and and make a profit, or does it take time to grow a franchise? I can answer that both ways, yes. If you get an area where you can hire a Bruce, Spring, Bruce Springsteen and pay him a, a million and a half dollars or what he wants, and you can draw 40, 50,000 people and know how to do it, you can make money, but that's not your festival. If you want to build a festival, it takes a little time. A festival is not something that's renting a field and putting a name of an artist, taking an ad in the paper. A festival is work. It's work to become part of a community. It's work to have a mission. It's a concept of, of establishing integrity in what you're doing. It's a year-round job just to produce two or three days of music. And we have a staff, a very small staff, about seven or eight people total between the two festivals. But we're working 24-7. Our mind is always thinking of promotion and structure, particularly social media is what you get involved with, trying to build your base on social media. The thing I liked most this year was uh, uh, I, I received a Grammy. That in itself did not mean that much to me because, hey, I've been around a long time. I was very happy to receive the award. But LL Cool J introduced me, and uh, he he said that talked about Newport and how that was the first, as you call it, outdoor festival, summer festival, non non classical music, and talked about how everything that has followed between what we did with the Newport Jazz and Newport Folk and the, the Jazz and Heritage Festival in New Orleans has influenced festivals like Bonnaroo and and uh, all there's dozens of festivals around America right now. My friend Ben Jaffe, who runs the Preservation Hall, Ben was over here the other day, and he said, uh, we plan a lot of festivals now. They're smaller festivals. I said, well, what do you mean by smaller festivals? So 30 or 35,000 people. Smaller festivals. <laughs> Newport is 10,000 people. And yet Newport remains the beacon that a lot of them still follow. We'll be back in a moment with more about Newport from George Ween. Here at Musonomics, we've been delighted with your response to our podcast since we debuted earlier this year. But one of the drawbacks for podcasters is that we really don't know who you are. And we'd like to find out. So we posted a brief listener survey at musonomics.com survey, what we learned about you will help us make a more responsive, sustainable podcast. So visit musonomics.com survey and tell us about yourself. Thanks in advance for participating, and thanks for listening. And now, 
back to the show. Can we go back to 1965 and that moment where Bob Dylan surprised everyone, including you? I've had that story so much, and I always say that uh, if I met Dylan, I would say, I want to thank you, Bob, for making me famous. <laughs> <laughs> but I was backstage when Dylan went electric, and the crowd was going crazy. I mean, the Dylan L. Files saying the cheering was louder than the booze. If there was any cheering, I couldn't hear him because of the booze. Yeah, people were very upset. And uh, uh, I said to Bob when he came up, you better go back and sing a, uh, an acoustic song or we're gonna have a problem. He said, I don't have a guitar. And I said, anybody have a guitar for Dylan? And, and uh, the 20 guitars went up in the air you know, from all our folk singers. So he went back and sang, it's all over now, baby blue. And I guess it was all over now. But uh, the stories about that night are just so incredible. Pete Seeger was going to get an axe and, and chop the uh, sound system cables. It's ridiculous. Pete, Pete was very upset. He ran away to sit in the car. And he sent for me and said, George, can you do anything about that sound? I said, it's too late, Pete. There's nothing we can do. We just have to sit with it. He was, he was upset about it. But then he later came around understand that this is what the young people wanted. So, you know, years later, he accepted that. What happened was there was this division of young people, a dichotomy of, 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 of what was happening in the music world. The Beatles had come along and a whole world was going electronic. But the last bastion of acoustic music was the Newport Folk Festival and folk music. And Bob Dylan blowing in the wind and, and God on our side and Joan Baez singing her beautiful songs and Peter, Paul and Mary singing Bob Dylan songs. And that, these kids, they were rejecting electronic music. But when their idol went electronic, that was it. It was only, the folk festival lasted three or four more years after that. You know, pop music had taken over. So, hey, it's life. So now everything is cyclical. People doing festivals, they think they'll last forever. They may last forever. They may last a long time. But you better adjust them as time goes on. You better pay attention to what's happening. Because as your audience grows older, your musicians grow younger. Uh -huh. You know, and... and uh, the younger people are coming up with new ideas. And if you want to reach the new younger crowd, you better relate to what's happening. George, you were an innovator in, uh, in so many areas, but other than the way that you programmed the music itself and where and when you did, you are often acknowledged at having been a very important innovator in the area of sponsorship around music festivals. When was your first involvement with a sponsored festival event? We uh, never had any sponsors when we started. A big thing was when Narragansett Beer bought the back cover of the program book. Oh boy, they gave us $2,000 or something like that. But a man from Schlitz Brewery in Milwaukee saw all the publicity we're getting, and he came to Newport, and he says, well, we want to be the beer at Newport, and we'll buy, we'll give you a little more money. And then he said, maybe we'll sponsor a night. 
So we did a schlitzlute to big bands. And then I came to him, I says, Ben, why don't we do, we do concerts around America. Why don't we do a schlitzlute to jazz? And he did, and we did back. The next thing I knew, I got $120,000 from, I went out to Milwaukee, $6,000 a night they paid us to sponsor. I don't know how many, I guess we did 20 cities, 12, whatever. It, it worked, it was very good, but uh, they didn't stay with us because the next guy came in wanted sports, you know. They later came back to us. But that started the concept of sponsorship. And uh, Cool came to us, and we were doing these huge outdoor festivals in Cincinnati, which had ended up being soul festivals. We were playing people like Gladys Knight and the Pips and, and uh, even the Jackson Five and... and uh, Everybody you can think of, the OJs, the, the, the uh, you know, uh, whatever, you know, all the groups of that era. And there was a young African-American from uh, Brown and Williamson said, you should come down to the headquarters for, for Brown and Williamson. Next thing we know, we had the cool festivals, which was the really major event. And we, we gave the name of the event to the sponsor. And why did I think of that? Hey, on television all the time, they had the Texaco Star Theater. If you could do it on television, why can't you do it, you know, in, in the event you're doing? Well, we won't do that now with nonprofit. I won't give the name away because everything is a little different. But in those days, by doing that, I established my own economics future, and we created a concept of sponsorship, which is now a multi-million dollar business for sponsoring festivals. I don't know how many millions of dollars are spent by sponsors on all these festivals, but, and they sponsor stages, there's all sorts of things they're doing. And, and believe me, without the sponsorship money, it's difficult to make it. Before we're done, I'd like to just do a little word association or name association with you. I'll throw out a name and you can say whatever comes into your mind, a word or a sentence or a story, if you like. So, Louis Armstrong. Wrote the language of jazz. There would be no jazz the way we know it if it hadn't been for the way Pops played. I once asked him why he played that way, and he says, well, I, I just played the way I sang, but he never told me why I sang that way. <laughs> Duke Ellington. Duke Ellington embodied elegance and influenced my life greatly in my own concept of presentation of music. Thelonious Monk. Thelonious taught me how to deal with guys that needed help, and he needed help, and I, we became very, very close friends. Miles Davis. Miles Davis taught me how to work with people that needed help. <laughs> I, I hear a theme developing here. And uh, we, we had our battles. We had wonderful battles, but we ended up very good friends. Albert Grossman. Albert Grossman I had a lot of respect for. I, we were partners, but I broke up the partnership because of lifestyle. But he was a genius. Joan Baez. Joan Baez personified a, uh, an ideology that she lived with all her life and still lives it. Alan Lomax? Alan Lomax, brilliant, brilliant folklorist, uh, was very concerned with his own image, own reputation, 
But at the same time, everybody in folk music owes him something. Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger is a man that changed my life. One of the people that I worshipped. And to the day he died, I was his close friend, he and his wife. And his wife and my wife were very good friends. I, I love Pete Seeger. It's This year's Newport Folk Festival is July 24th to 26th. The Newport Jazz Festival is the weekend of July 31st. An enormous thanks to George Ween for chatting with us. And although that interview and this episode is over, we're not done with the world of music festivals just yet. Be sure to check back next week for the second half of our two-part series on the state of the Summer Music Festival. Now that we've heard where and how the modern music festival started, we'll take you where the summer festival has gone since Newport and where it's going. We'll talk about Bonnaroo and the not-so-sudden rise of the gigantic electronic dance music festivals like Tomorrowland and EDC. But that's all the time we have for this episode. Before we go, we're happy to tell you about a whole new way to listen to the Musonomics podcast as we're now available on the iHeartRadio app, in addition to iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and YouTube. The Musonomics Podcast is a production of Musonomics LLC, strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. The Musonomics Podcast was produced at NYU by Sam Behrens and Travis Fodor. Special thanks this episode to Deborah Ross, Jerry Chasen, and to Ron Sadoff and Catherine Moore. I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. Thanks for listening.